This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, First Nations leaders say the 2030 Olympic bid isn't dead yet as they push the provincial government to negotiate. Plus, the Surrey Police Service continues to add more officers despite the pledge to scrap it. Surrey Mayor-elect Brenda Locke joins us to discuss what policing will look like under her leadership. And foodie heaven, we look at the eight Vancouver restaurants which received the prestigious Michelin honors. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's jump in and talk 2030 Olympics. Well, today, First Nations leaders say they're still open to pursuing a bid to host the 2030 Olympics at BC, but need the provincial government to engage in talks for plans to move forward. They spoke today at a press conference at 11 o'clock. This, of course, comes after BC's Minister of Tourism, Arts and Culture, Lisa Baer, announced yesterday that the province would not support the bid, saying it needs to focus on people and the immediate needs uh, here in British Columbia, specifically around um, uh, affordability, uh, once also focus on mental health and addiction and public safety. Now, Councillor Wilson Williams of the Squamish Nation told reporters today that he was disheartened to hear the news because the province did not speak with First Nations leading the Indigenous led bid before making the decision. Uh, Mr. Williams said that organizers didn't come to the table asking for a blank check and they still want to have meaningful dialogue with the government about the bid. Uh, Mr. Wilson was also joined by other First Nations leaders, including Musqueam Chief Wayne Sparrow. Here are his comments from today's press conference. This to me is bigger than the 2030 uh, games. Uh, It was very exciting to uh, sit with our cousins and our, our, our family and our friends from the municipality of Whistler and Vancouver to go on this journey. Um, and the federal government and the provincial government, um, it's very disappointing. Um, one of the things that I left with yesterday was when the minister uh, mentioned that it was not a priority. I would really like to know where the priority is from the provincial government on reconciliation if it's not a priority uh, of the existing government. So that's the only comments that I have at this time. Thank you. Also joining uh, Mr. Sparrow was Jen Thomas. Uh, she is uh, chief of the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation. She also expressed her disappointment, not necessarily in regards to the bid being rejected, but how the government went about uh, talking with First Nations and in many cases not talking with them. Take a listen. I am not so upset about the province uh, saying they're not supporting the 2030 bid, but I'm upset of the process that didn't happen. You know, we we did invite the province to come to our table to talk about this. We were asked by the province to share why we want the Olympics, why it's so important to us, and we didn't even get get that opportunity to share that with them. I think I would have been okay if this decision was made with all of us in the room. But again, that didn't happen. For our nation, you know, this is 10 step backwards in reconciliation. 
That was Chief Jen Thomas from the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation. Now, Wilson Williams, uh, the chief that I would, sorry, the uh, counselor from the Squamish First Nation that I had mentioned um, when we first began um, this segment, he says the if the province ultimately opts, uh, opts out not to support uh, hosting the 2030 Games, it will kill the bid, but the First Nations involved may be open to exploring future bids. Take a listen. You know, our canoe is stalled right now. If we don't get the provincial federal government in the canoe, we are still here. We aren't going anywhere. And the power of us working together, it's not going away. But we want to have these conversations. We want to be in the room to have this dialogue. Even if we met and had true conversations and negotiations and still came to a conclusion that it wouldn't work, we would be okay with that as long as we had our voice and we were at the table to make these decisions. That is Wilson Williams from the Squamish First Nation. Now, it's estimated holding the 2030 Olympics in Vancouver, Whistler, and the Sun Peaks Resort near Kamloops would cost between 3.5 and $4 billion, with funding coming from a mix of public and private sources. For more on this, we're joined now by Tricia Smith, President of the Canadian Olympic Committee. Tricia, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jess, for having me. Why was it important for you to speak today? Because I was part of this team. And uh, this has been an incredible journey that we've been on together, equal partners at the table. And, um, you know, I just wanted to, to talk to all Canadians about what this could mean for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a lot of talk about cost. Um, and I know it's early stages. These things take time in regards to finalizing costs. Can you give uh, our audience a sense of, uh, all British Columbians, a sense of, where you were in regards to cost, in regards to facilities, that type of thing? It's a big project, there's no question. Um, But, you know, you think about the rewards um, that would be um, garnered by the province for for these. So it'll be the renovation of existing facilities, um, and that would be for generations to come. It would be um, a contribution, and it would be a larger contribution, relatively speaking, to housing, because, again, that's much needed, and that would be, not only in Vancouver, but in Whistler and also Lilwat. Lilwat, it's, it's, it's hugely needed up in that area. So um, the costs would be um, a percentage of, of, um, of the total cost. And again, I'm, I hesitate to say that the number because without the um, province and the federal government in the table, you can't really get to the ultimate what the cost would be. But um, it, it was... Less than a billion, it's around $900 million that would be the cost, uh, and that would include then all of the, um, all of the upgrades needed to the, all the venues, which, and this is work that would have to be done anyways, um, as well as um, the housing, which is work that would have to be done anyways. But what we saw in the um, 2010 games was these, these priorities get accelerated, right, and they get matching dollars. So I think that's sort of one of the benefits of the games is the matching funds. So these are numbers of um, dollars that would have to be spent in large part anyways, but they have the benefit of matching dollars. Hmm. Uh, do you think um, more work could have been done in regarding regarding bringing the public along? Uh, we had lots of calls yesterday. People said, look, I think the government made the right decision and there are other priorities at this particular point. Uh, do you think more work could have been done in, in educating the public, uh, uh, discussing with the public, uh, interacting with the public in regards to this this particular um, this particular uh, project. Yeah, I mean, there um, there's always more that you can do for sure. Uh, this is probably the most engagement 
that uh, has ever been done before a proposal goes forward. So uh, the um, the numbers of of um, of public uh, or actually in person engagements and also online um, before the proposal was actually started being start to put together. If you think of 2010, um, there was no public involvement before the proposal was actually put forward to the Canadian Olympic Committee to then decide whether it would go forward internationally. Mm-hmm. Do you view this project as um, as uh, finished now, or do you think there's opportunity uh, to perhaps discuss a uh, 2034 bid? I think um, we've heard uh, we heard from the nations that they're waiting for a response. Um, they they actually sent a letter to. Premier-elect Eby, and they're waiting for a direct response from him. They they only heard back from uh, from Minister Bear to their to their letter mm-hmm. uh, to to Premier-elect Eby. Um, with regard to 2034, I mean we'd have to reassess that as a Canadian Olympic Committee. We funded this bid along with the Paralympic Committee, um, and and I, I think that's an important point too. Is we we didn't start down this process without speaking to the province, and as I mentioned today, we spoke to. Um, to Premier Horgan and said, look, no commitment. Um, to be clear, I'm not saying that they committed anything, but no commitment. We're looking at, we'd like to do a feasibility study as to whether, along with the nations, as to whether this is, it makes sense to bring to bring the games back to British Columbia. And, and Premier Horgan, and we said, but to be clear, we don't want to spend the time and resources if the province wouldn't be open to this. And Premier Horgan was very supportive and said, look, we'd be very interested in this this idea, um, and as I said, he joked, as long as you had uh, lacrosse uh, on ice, I'd be in. And of course, he was joking. But um, so then we went ahead, and and you know, we spent almost six million dollars on this process, and it was um, had a lot of, um, of of parts to this, including um, engagement in an indigenous way. What do you think the Olympic movement can do in regards to that broader conversation about reconciliation in this country? Well, I, you know, you listen to what the nations say about what it means, because that's what I said off the top, too, when we were invited into this process. I say, I said, but why the Olympic Games? Um, and the nation said to me, Tricia, because it's the biggest show on earth, and we would be inviting the world to a different Canada to tell our stories, to tell our stories together. Absolutely. Tricia, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jess. We talked about Elon Musk, and after our show uh, went off the air, uh, we found out that uh, Mr. Uh, Musk had taken control of Twitter after a protracted legal battle and after months of uncertainty. The question now is what the billionaire Tesla CEO will actually do with the social media platform. Now, there have been major personal shakeups expected, uh, with Musk already ousting several uh, Twitter executives uh, yesterday. Uh, A fourth uh, was confirmed uh, later uh, that day as well. But Musk, the tech guru and self-proclaimed uh, proclaimed chief twit, has otherwise made contradictory statements about his vision for the company and shared few concrete plans for how he will run it after buying it for, get this, $44 million US. Now joining me now to discuss where the chief twit will take the social media platform is Jesse Miller. He's a social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jess. Yesterday, uh, we went off the air and uh, Financial Times out of London uh, had a story that basically confirmed that Mr. Musk uh, had purchased Twitter and obviously it's uh, all over the the media today. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of it. What do you make of this purchase? 
So obviously a billionaire has been able to do something that he kind of flip-flopped on. You know, he, he tried to kind of talk about the way that Twitter should be structured and that it would be better if he owned it. And we've gone the better part here of six months of whether this is going to happen or not and whether or not even the deal itself would uh, come to fruition in any way. But, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting viewpoint here in the sense of his approach to saying that the town square, as we kind of call Twitter, uh, should be available for people and, and, and a variety of voices, and giving people equal space at the table. And that's very hard when you have one individual really kind of holding the reins of how the company itself will be directed. And so if we think about our democratic societies and the way that we vote and we elect people into positions, we always know that there's you know, perceptions of conspiracy or that favoritism or even, uh, at the end of the day, uh, nepotism play roles in the way that individuals come to power. But the hard part here is that he is using his financial clout to control a business that he thinks should go a specific way. And he's, he's opened, obviously, to bringing people in. Uh, but right off the bat in his first day, he's cleared out uh, the executive team. He's cleared out legal counsel. And he's also cleared out some very important people in trust and safety who very much were shaping how people were allowed to communicate on Twitter when it comes to hate, disinformation, and targeting individuals based on things that we have protected in our society. Uh, what's your idea of success for Mr. Um, Musk? Um, some would say, as you said, he's cleared out some senior-level executives, some important positions as well in regards to safety uh, and hate. Um, is he a guy who's going to rely more on algorithms to deal with some of the hate that's there? Uh, is that his? Is that going to be the idea of success right now for Twitter, which is just deal with the hate, deal with the bots, and you might actually have a successful um, platform? Yeah, I love the idea of get rid of the bots by creating more bots. Uh, it's almost a matrix feel of a start a, start a war of attrition. Um, what, what I think is really kind of concerning here is that um, social media is supposed to be a human interaction, and AI is not very good at assessing human interaction. And so when we look at like, the ideas of free speech, and obviously that's very much kind of an American term, but in Canada, our freedom of speech and expression get to that point of what does it mean to express something and, and back it up with factual information, back it up with opinion, or when it comes down to it, understand that the words you're saying may be hurting another human being. And so when we have our limitations of speech in Canada, you know, I can't come on the airways right now and, and say something hateful. Mm-hmm. I could, but I have to face the consequences of that based on somebody saying, hey, when this individual targeted this group, this is a law that was contravened. So AI may not be the answer. And we've had people say, you know, they should hire moderators, thousands of them to moderate the platform, but you're still subjective in the space of what do those boundaries look like. And so in Germany, which has some very strict hate uh, hate speech laws, um, will we see the same apply as equally in the United States? Or let's say China, where Twitter does not operate, but Tesla does. What, what if China says, you know, we don't like how people are talking about Chinese content on Twitter. Does that mean that Elon Musk will be forced to dictate how information on Twitter is being exchanged because it impacts his other business? And so there are so many little variables there that go into what does it mean when you have government interacting with a platform that is supposed to be about individuals sharing ideas, talking about things, bringing awareness and even if we look at right now in Iran, when we consider the uprising against government, against, against the, the controlling state, you know, Twitter would have played a huge role in how individuals would have shared information. But if you have a Tesla product that is being sold and they're saying, hey, you're not going to be able to sell this product unless you curb how people are talking about something on Twitter, there are so many avenues that this is going to go down where the oligarch should not be at the helm. Hmm. 
in the the overall question about social media today, you know, the, the earlier this week, um, the financial numbers for Facebook had had come in. They weren't very good for a variety of reasons. Their stock has dropped. Some have said that they have an existential challenge. That the younger generation just has no interest in Facebook. I I, I can do a survey of one 13-year-old in my home who would tell me the same thing. Um, where is social media today? Uh, you know, you hear of TikTok's growing popularity, and it's an existential challenge for some of the older social media, like Facebook, like Instagram. Uh, where are we in this space now? Are people tiring of social media, or is it a question of just um, a new shiny thing coming along, uh, attracting the attention? It's not necessarily whether people are tiring of it. It's the, it's the content. And I, I just want to keep one thing in mind here. No matter the platform, content and content moderation is what social media is. If we see a person post something that we know is offensive, it goes viral, people talk about it, and then we call for moderation in that space. And so whether it's Facebook and you have community groups, individuals who are just bickering about whatever the noise was in their neighborhood that they heard, or whether or not it is public discourse when it comes to talking about something that's happening in community, whether it happened on Facebook or WeChat or whether it happened on Twitter or Instagram, um, there are aspects of ageism that go into this space. And so we can, well, we can agree that Facebook is for old people. We're not seeing a lot of teenagers in that space. TikTok is a wonderful platform for content creators, but there are obviously concerns about how people are sharing themselves and how that information is collected by a company. And the same would actually equally apply to Snapchat. I mean, the reason I'm a grown man who doesn't have Snapchat is because I'm not a teenager who wants to take selfies of myself. Mm -hmm. And so in that, there's a little bit of that kind of uh, judgment that goes into it. And so for me, I know that me saying, hey, I'm not a teenager who wants to take selfies of himself, there's a, a, a judgment broadcast for me in that space. And so when somebody says, I'm not interested in TikTok, it's not my thing, it doesn't mean that there's not something there for you. It just means you're not willing to kind of take the time to learn about it. And so Facebook, a lot of your users, very comfortable in that space. And I know that Zuckerberg and the team at Meta are pushing this metaverse as much as they want. No one wants to go into a space where your avatar is interacting with another avatar. We, we had that with Sims. We had that with, um, you know, the old internet dial-up where individuals would meet each other in these lounges. And again, there was a hypersexualization that went to that. And then we went to geosocial dating where individuals could find each other based on who they were. And as long as you're legitimate, you're probably, you know, in a good stead to find a good relationship. So the hard part here is legitimacy of the person and the user. And I'm really kind of expecting a change in the way people use social media in the sense of verification. I want to see more everyday users verified on the platform. I don't want to see fake names. I don't want to see fake accounts. I don't want to see people harassing each other from the behind, uh, you know, of a, of a username that they created. And just very something simple in Vancouver, if you look at Canuck social media, mm -hmm. you have a world of people on Twitter who are willing to give an opinion about everything involving this team. But if you look at some of the hate and some of the direction that individuals who are very smart in that space are subject to, I mean, that mute button on Twitter when it comes to individuals like Samantha Chang, who's a fantastic voice, not only in the hockey community, but representing female voices in that space. And you look at some of the vitriol when she has an opinion. Luckily, she can go and highlight and say, hey, you know what? This is where you're wrong. I'm going to back it up. But not every person has that fortitude. And so the mute button, the block button, the report button, those are all really important tools. But most of the time, all we're doing is blocking some fake account as opposed to a legitimate human being who we can hold to consequence. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to be a fascinating uh, few months uh, uh, moving forward here with uh, Mr. Musk at the helm. Plenty of news, I'm sure, coming from Twitter. That's for sure. Jesse, thank you so much. Thanks, Jazz. I appreciate it. Vancouver is officially on the foodie map after last night's big Michelin guide reveal. Eight restaurants were awarded a, uh, a Michelin star and an additional 12 were named Bib Gourmands. For more, we bring in our show contributor, John Jang. 
After years of waiting, the Michelin Guide finally unveiled their picks for top Vancouver restaurants last night with a big event at the Vancouver Convention Center to take us through the eight restaurants that were named Michelin Star winners and the additional 12 that were named Bib Gourmand winners. We are once again having a conversation with Tony Kwan, a columnist at Richmond News, and a food and wine blogger, Trophy Wine Hunter, and Trophy Food Experiences, both pages on YouTube. Tony, just want to get your reaction to everything that happened last night and the list that we have received for Vancouver foodies now excited to dive into the whole menu, if you will. Yeah, John. Wow, I agree. What a night. That was so great. Uh, I was on pins and needles the whole night watching it. I'm still processing it. But firstly, I think we should really give a lot of credit to the inspectors uh, from Michelin. You know, they had to come into this new market and they had to visit all these restaurants in a very short period of time. So I think they did an excellent job in trying to kind of come to understand this market and put together this guide. So uh, after processing it last night, it's kind of to me like the Oscars when you have your favorite movie and you have the one that you think is going to win and your favorites and some of them lose and you're kind of all upset. But actually, when you think about everyone is really that even nominated as a winner. And that's kind of how I kind of feel today about the Michelin Guide. There are lots of restaurants. Some of them uh, that got stars are things one of some of my favorites some of them didn't but every restaurant that got listed in the guide is a great restaurant and i think we should really be happy for vancouver it's a great thing and now we're on the culinary map you've been to a bunch of the restaurants that won the michelin star winners were you uh, surprised by any of those that made the list or maybe surprised that some didn't make the final list yeah. So I think firstly, we have to go back to Michelin has a certain way of criteria to rate things. And that's maybe a little bit different than we as consumers. Um, we as consumers tend to put a greater emphasis on the overall experience. And um, I made a comment yesterday about, when, John, when you asked me about ambience and service, and I said it mattered. But it matters in a different way. And kind of there's a different viewpoint of how Michelin looks at things. So Michelin rates based on um, certain criteria. And these are like using quality products, mastery of flavor and cooking techniques, personality of the chef, value for money, and then the consistency of the food. And it's in that fourth criteria, value of money, where that total experience comes in. But when they're looking at service and ambience, they're not looking at it the same way that a consumer looks at it. So that's, they look at it as it pertains to the quality of the food. So an example of that is they're looking at for instance, how fast the food gets from the past to your table, because if the food of that service is slow, then the food is going to taste cold and it's not going to be the quality. We as consumers look at service more towards, um, you know, if someone's friendly, if they do something special for us, if it's a special event or a birthday, it's a different um, way of looking at it. Likewise, with ambience, they're looking for ambience that reflects the mood of the food and speaks to the personality of the chef. We as consumers generally look at um, just how magnificent the place is and how how much of a wow factor it has. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons might, might, where there would be a disconnect between uh, public opinion and a Michelin Guide, because Michelin Guide is not a consumer choice awards. It's um, more about the quality. I think they put more emphasis on the quality of the food, whereas consumers, I think, uh, put a little bit more emphasis on the overall experience, like how much we enjoy the restaurant. Tony, with your experience having tried some of these restaurants, do you feel the Bib Gourmand accurate, accurately reflects you know the market that's available here in Vancouver? 
I think they did an excellent job. I'm very supportive of it. I wish they would have had more. Um, there's about, I think there's 12 Bib Gourmet restaurants. I wish there were more than that. In fact, I think there are many in the community that deserve a Bib Gourmet rating. And that will come with time. Again, the inspectors had a very short period of time. They had to do a lot of eating over a very short period of time. So um, I think we should cut them a little slack for the first year. And I'm sure that we're going to, as um, Vancouver gets rated over the years we're going to get more and more of these ratings but some of my favorites there um, Anne and Chi I love that place mm-hmm. uh, I go all the time one uh, Say Mercy I've been there on Fraser Street wonderful restaurant and Vidges I'm going there this weekend so it's l- lovely and there's also um, the wonderful thing about these ratings is that it brings up restaurants that other people have tried that I haven't tried. So one that people that my friends have tried is called Lunch Lady. And I've said, well, I'd like to go now. So it's um, positive in terms of it brings uh, restaurants to consumers' uh, viewpoint and we can go out and try them. And final question for you, Tony, just how exciting is this for the city of Vancouver? Obviously the first Michelin guide, but surely not the last. There's exciting times ahead for people who love to eat. That's right. I think this is a positive step for Vancouver. It puts us on the culinary map. We had, uh, I think, 60 listed restaurants, which is wonderful. It stirs up conversation among people, um, and it will bring all these visitors and tourists to our city to try our excellent cuisine. So I, I can't think of anything that's really negative about this process. Great chefs from all around the world will see Vancouver as a um, destination that they can start restaurants in. And that's only going to be good for consumers and uh, foodies like us. Exactly. I love to eat. I love food. And I can't wait to see what the future of Vancouver's food scene will look like now that Michelin has finally and formally arrived here uh, in Vancouver. He is Tony Kwan, columnist for Richmond News, food and wine blogger at Trophy Wine Hunter, Trophy Food Experiences on YouTube. Tony, again, thank you so much for this. Thanks, John. Uh, our John Jang joins us now. John, first of all, thank you for that report. Uh, you can just tell Tony is such a <laughs> dedicated to the restaurant and culinary industry, but you can tell he's a total foodie. Yeah, absolutely. I think Tony's a great voice on this. He's actually been to multiple uh, Michelin restaurants, not just the ones named here in Vancouver, but all over the world. If you check out his Instagram page, he was recently in Vegas. So obviously, lots of great restaurant uh, picks there in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want uh, a tasty sort of re- recommendation, some, some suggestions, if you're ever on trips, uh, you got to go check out his uh, Instagrams. When you looked at the list, and uh, I'm a suburban guy, but uh, you know, I've mm-hmm. traveled to Vancouver a lot in my many years as a reporter. Uh, did you recognize all all the names or some of them just sort of like I was talking to Joe Bennett uh, a few hours ago. Yeah. Uh, and so, there's some names in there that uh, we hadn't heard of before. I mean, I, did you feel the same way? Um, I think I knew maybe two on the list. <laughs> okay. You're like me. That's then. <laughs> it. Because I'm not an expert. Like I, I don't also, I don't have the, the cash to always enjoy the fine dining at mm-hmm. all times. So it has to be a really, really, really special event. But I would say I was surprised by the names that weren't on the list more than anything. Uh, like what? Like is there a particular well, restaurant? Yeah, I think for me, um, Joe Forte's, I think that would have been a pretty solid pick. I don't know if us locals just happen to have a higher, like, 
idea of what Joe Fortes is than everybody else. But I thought that was a surprising omission. And then Tojo is on Broadway, uh, debatably and arguably the man who made the California role famous here in Vancouver. Oh, yeah, that's a good not one. a peep from the Michelin Guide, not as a winner, not as a bib gourmand, not even as a recommendation. So I think that one is a little bit controversial when you also compare some of the other uh, Japanese restaurants that made the list, not just in Vancouver, but also in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, Vidge's is a well-known one. I think most people would mm-hmm. get it. And I was going through um, uh, the Daily Daily Hive, and I think they have about 10 of those restaurants between the ones that uh, were recognized at the star and those that are Bib Gourmand. I think there's a few of them that you can actually – 13, it says actually in the article that you can actually order uh, food from usually using one of the ordering services here right. uh, with DoorDash. So it's, it's not like the, a lot of them are high-end either. So that, that says a lot. The Surrey Police Board is still moving ahead with plans to transition the city from the RCMP to a new municipal police force despite the election of a new mayor who pledged to undo the switch. At its final meeting before Mayor-elect Brenda Locke takes over as board chair, the SPB revealed another 35 officers would be onboarded next month, joining the 150 members already patrolling Surrey streets. Uh, Chief Norm Lipinski told us on this show on Monday that in addition to those officers, more recruits were set to attend the Justice Institute of BC in January. Uh, right now, we are told uh, that uh, the total staff for the Surrey Police Service is at 350 people. Joining us now to discuss policing in our community is Surrey Mayor-elect Brenda Locke, on top of many other responsibilities that she will be dealing with once she is sworn in in early November. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jazz. It's uh, great to be here. I apologize I couldn't be on the other day when you were looking for me, but... Uh, Great to be here today. It, it's okay. I know you're a little busy. Uh, you've got a lot to uh, 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 sort of wrap your head around as uh, you you get you and the rest of that council get sworn in and lots of responsibilities before you. So let's start with the immediate issue of policing. There's many issues you have to actually have to deal with in a community of 600,000 plus people, but let's talk about policing for a second. Where are we in regards to the conversation of policing? Uh, you get sworn in, I think it's November 7th. What can we expect in the first sort of four to eight weeks uh, in regards to the policing situation? So um, in, the, in the very beginning, uh, right away, I had asked our staff, city staff, to uh, start the process to, um, to go back to confirm that the RCMP will be and will be in the future the police of jurisdiction. That has been happening. So city staff have been working on that both from a financial perspective and from an operational perspective. So that is building a report that uh, um, has been requested by the um, Minister, Solicitor General, uh, and we are working on that report. That will be ready by the end of November. Uh, It will be public-faced. We will have, uh, prior to that though, um, some initial uh, information out to the public, I hope, uh, by the 14th of November. So there will be um, there will be public-faced reports going out in a very um, transparent way so the public know. Uh, in regards to that, uh, the 14th, as you say, as you aspire to provide some information to the public, would that include knowing what the real cost of that transition is? Uh, that's been part of the challenge beyond whether it's RCMP or SPS. It really is what is the true cost of the transition? Yeah, exactly. And and uh, certainly we had done our own um, 
during the campaign, as you know, but it's really important that the uh, that the city does its own work and does the the work here at City Hall. I know the preliminary stuff is is getting ready, and we will start to roll out those costs very soon, and I'm hoping that that will be ready by the 14th, but absolutely it will be ready by the end of uh the end of November, the 28th. So your desire, obviously, is, and you've, you've campaigned on it, as you said, is to is to keep the RCMP. What do you do with the 350 people on staff with the Surrey Police Service moving forward? So I, uh, you, you kind of said it at the beginning, Jazz. There is 150, about, um, maybe a little less, that are actually police officers on the ground. Those officers will have the option... To uh, ladder to the to the RCMP, the RCMP will be working uh, with with them and with us to uh, facilitate that. Um, but the staff, the balance of that is all civilian staff. Those civilian staff will be able to come back uh, to Surrey. Many of them are QP402 members anyway. They will be coming back in and going back to work for the RCMP. Many of them prefer that anyway, so they're quite happy, and I've talked to a number of them to be coming back uh, to their original union, but they will all come back into uh, to Surrey. I had mentioned that uh, Chief Norm Lipinski of the Surrey Police Service was on the show on Monday. I talked to him a little bit about uh, that very issue. Take a listen to what he had to say in regards to HR and uh, contractual obligations uh, that SBS has. There's also a labor, I would say, contractual issue there as well, in the sense of some of these people have cashed out their pensions. The ones that carry their pensions, is it reversible? I don't know. There is uh, a wage difference. Uh, What about seniority? What does that really mean? If I have somebody with uh, 10 years service, is it going to be 10 years service over there? What does that mean for promotional opportunities? Mm-hmm. There's so, so many, I'll say, labor, logistical issues to be sorted out that I think makes it impractical. Can the city, and with the RCMP, overcome these HR, legal and logistical challenges, as the chief said, to actually move these officers and uh, civilian staff over to the RCMP? You know... With all due respect to Mr. Lipinski, the the fact is we have got all kinds of people that are dealing with this here. We have professional HR people. We have lawyers working on this. Our staff absolutely knows what the expectation is, and so there is none of the issues that he's talking about have been raised uh, before me. He may have some specifics on one specific issue, but in general, I can tell you all of these issues are and have been covered. We have uh, experts in the field dealing with that. And in regards to some officers saying, look, uh, I, I cashed my pension out, I came over to here to join a municipal police force, and they prefer not to join the RCMP, uh, would you, would the city be obligated to pay that severance? I, I mean, some of them may have only been on contract for a year, but I've been told that the severance is 18 months in some cases. I'm not sure why you owe 18 months after a year of service. Uh, and maybe that's a different debate and, and issue, but uh, would the city still be able to willing to pay out some of the severance costs that come from this if they if they don't pref- if they don't prefer not to join the Surrey RCMP? 
Well, it, you know, again, I would leave that up to the experts to deal with, but I do know this, that it is a working, um, it's a working severance, so they still can, this is not going to be a, a stop on one day and transfer, it's, mm -hmm. that's not possible. So obviously some of these people will be working for, for some time, and so uh, for those people with, um, if that is the case, and I don't know that to be true, but uh, if that is the case, they can work out their their 18 months. Uh, and and uh, Brenda, you've got 800 plus, I think 800 RCMP officers uh, in Surrey. With these 150 uh, that you're paying for now, I guess, as well, but the city can afford the built-in cost uh, moving forward. These, these are permanent costs to pay for these officers on top of the 800 you already have. The city budget can, can, can absorb that? Yeah. Actually, um, Jazz, we don't have 800. We have less. So it, it is getting us up to that, um, the number that, that we have, which is about 843. Um, but we have, we have considerably less because um, as we were putting in um, SPS officers, we were taking out our CMP officers. So there is a delta there that will be, um, will be uh, achievable. That, that will not be an issue for us. Uh, Monday is uh, Halloween. Uh, Monday for Surrey residents is the first day the present mayor uh, is going to be in court. We assume he'll be in court. His trial is supposed to begin on October 31st. Um, will the city moving forward be covering Mr. McCallum's court costs once you are sworn in as mayor? So I have asked staff to uh, cease paying the um, the bill and to look at what we can do moving forward to recruit, or sorry, to recoup uh, the monies that are paid, that have been paid so far um, to, to the lawyer for, uh, for Mr. McCallum. And uh, I have every intention of doing whatever I can to ensure that the residents of Surrey are not paying his bill for uh, his criminal charge. I've just got a couple more questions for you. Uh, during, uh, right before, uh, I guess, Election Day, you had those uh, uh, land use applications pushed through. You were there. I think it was 50. Uh, and if there's ever um, an act that symbolized perhaps the last four years, there are many acts, of course, but the last act, I think, symbolized some of the... Um, uh, dysfunction of the council and certainly a certain management style of, of the present mayor, it would be those land use decisions pushed through. Uh, number one, what happens to those specific applications? Are those approved and you don't have to go back and look at them? Or And number two, how do you build in that transparency? Because at its core, the city's challenge in the last four years, one could argue, has been about being open and transparent with citizens. You know, thanks for that question, uh, Jazz. That is, uh, it was absolutely astonishing what happened on October 3rd, and you're right. It was, it was a culmination of four years of, of uh, what has happened in the city. Um, at that time, I, on a number of occasions, stopped the proceedings and said, please, Mr. Mayor, let the next council deal with this issue because it is at the very least, a perceived conflict, he said no. I challenged the chair, he still said no. So all of those that were suspicious in my, um, in my mind are being reviewed right now. Um, regardless, there was only one, I believe, that was at fourth reading means that it was a go. 
But even in that case, uh, we're going to take a second look at it because um, you're so right. This was not how anything should have happened at the end of a term. In fact, I really question the fact that we would have council meetings during what would be the equivalent of a writ period. There should not have, this should never, ever have happened. Well, Brenda, I know you've got a lot on, on your plate uh, as you get to uh, November 7th when you're sworn in. Look forward to chatting with you in the weeks and months ahead on this issue because it is, of course, a very important one for, for your citizens. Thank you so much for your time and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Jazz. Well, in a recent Nielsen survey uh, from earlier this year, nearly half of streaming users say they feel overwhelmed by choice. Now, think about that. I've got Netflix, I've got Disney+, Plus, i got Amazon Prime. I, I feel that way, too. You've got all this choice, but you just feel overwhelmed, but, and you still have FOMO as well, fear of missing out. What am I missing? So uh, we talked to our producer, Stephen Chang, who um, has been good enough to say, you know what, I'm going to go through all of that content. I'm going to sift through all of it and give you some recommendations for the weekend. Stephen, hello. Hello, Jazz. The worst thing you can do is spend more time scrolling through the entire Netflix page than watching a movie. So that's what I'm here for today. Thank you so much for doing this because I'm like one of those people, Jill and I were talking about this earlier, Jill Bennett, to the point where you spend 10, 15, 20 minutes, you can't make a decision you just give up sometimes. And then you go to sleep after, and that's how your day ends. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, you've uh, been uh, checking out some of the shows and movies that that are running on uh, the streaming services, and you have some recommendations for you. Which one's which one's your first one here? Well, you know, on the spirit of Halloween being around the corner, I decided to pick up some creepy picks today. Hmm. Um, we'll start with this new show that's been out on Netflix for like a week or so. Uh, it's based on a true story, and it's called The Watcher. Here's a trailer for it. I am The Watcher. Your house. Is my obsession. And now you are too. Who am I? It might not frighten you yet, but it will. Whoa. Now, what is The Watcher about? What is the theme? So The Watcher is based on a true story that was reported by New York Magazine uh, in 2018. So it's about this family that just bought this nice, beautiful suburban home. It's Mm -hmm. big. It's um, bougie. It's fancy. And it's 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 like a beautiful lot and they moved in from New York so they want this new life in this new house that they spent so much money on and spent all their savings on but over time they start getting letters from this figure known as the watcher and they start getting creepier because the watcher can see everything that this family's doing uh it starts kind of making some threatening messages towards their kids, like threatening to kidnap um, their children, making some weird, creepy stories, and even some weird things happen around the neighborhood. So I haven't finished the show yet, but I can tell you from watching the first few episodes, it really hooks you in because it just makes the whole show feel so suspenseful that you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't even know who the Watcher is. That's the biggest mystery of it. And Naomi Watts is in it, right? Naomi Watts is the star, yes. Okay. And uh, so it, it, do you like horror movies generally? 
No, but um, this is the year that I'm facing my fears. So, <laughs> so this is what I'm trying to do uh, this time around. And uh, fitting that it's Halloween and uh, you're paying me enough to have my own segment here on the show. So um, the second pick that I actually want to talk about on the subject of horror movies mm-hmm. is a new release on Disney Plus that was in theaters, but now it's on Disney Plus and it's called Barbarian. Here's the trailer for it. This is 476 Barbary, right? Yeah, I'm renting this place. No, I booked it a month ago. Are you sure you have the right place? Yeah. What am I supposed to do? Why don't you come inside and we'll call these idiots. This process might seem overwhelming. But with a little practice, it can soon become experience. So a little disclaimer about this movie is that it might not want to make you want to rent an Airbnb anymore after watching this. <laughs> no. So the story is about this woman who um, books an Airbnb and is double booked with this other guy. Uh-huh. So he invites her in and she stays, but then some things start to unfold. She discovers new areas in the home that uh, may not be what it seems. And it just starts to show all these hidden secrets about the house that really terrify the audience and also the character. Uh, and it terrified you. Oh my god, <laughs> I, I I can't even sleep anymore. Jazz, <laughs> really? I need Nyquil for this. <laughs> so I I can't, I can't even say this is one of the best horror movies of the year, might I add too. So the fact that it's on streaming now is such a treat for people who love horror movies. Uh-huh. It might not be a treat for me, but you know, viewers' discretion. It depends. Yeah, I, well, I mean, this is our theme this weekend with the with the the horror films and Halloween and all. And you, so this this one is available on Barbarian. You said it was on Disney Plus. Barbarian is on Disney Plus in Canada. That's right. Okay, and then The Watcher is on Netflix. Yeah. All right. And one more pick I have is a. It's kind of like an older show. It was out last year, but then I highly recommend it. It's called Midnight Mass. Here's one more trailer for it. We tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. The more that we know, the less we bend. The more brittle we become. The easier to break. That wasn't an act of God. Wasn't it? It's okay to just look at the world and say, why, 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 I don't understand. And, and this is a movie or a, or a series? So Midnight Mass is a limited series created by the person who made Haunting on Hill House. Um, that was a really popular series. So Mike Flanagan is his name, and he created Mid, uh, Midnight Mass, which is about a man who just came back to his um, hometown. It's kind of like a remote island. Okay. I think like Bowen Island. Kind mm-hmm. of that's kind of like a similar thing, but it's a very um, they're very Catholic in the area, so they're very uh, they, they value their religion. Mm-hmm. And um, the figurehead of their church goes missing for a while, and a newer priest comes in. But then strange things start to happen, ah. strange supernatural things start to happen. And I will tell you, this show is one of my favorite shows in Netflix ever because it may be creepy. It's not as scary to the point where you can't sleep, but it really just keeps you so curious about what's going to happen next. Wow. And, it's, and, it, and it uses faith as well. That's the backdrop. It's, it's a commentary on faith. And that's what I like about Midnight Mass is that it really makes you question um, some aspects of religion and like Catholicism in this instance in the show. So it's just a nice little social cam- uh, commentary on top of the 
horror, suspense, thriller kind of uh, theme to it. And that was last year it came out, but it's still it's still running on Netflix. It's still running on Netflix, and it came out last year. Yeah. All right. So Net, uh, The Watcher is on Netflix, Barbarian is on Disney+, Plus, and Midnight Mass is on Netflix as yes. well. Yes. And one last thing I'd like to say, Jazz, if all my scary picks are not for you, um, I highly recommend that you go watch on Disney+, Plus, Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Are you a reality guy? No, but I try to get into it. It seems really fun. And uh, if, I, if I need a way to sleep at night, Dancing with the Stars Dancing is the way to go. The star. and, you know, it's funny because those shows, the people who really love them, really love them. Like, I've never been a reality guy. I don't, I don't get the allure. I don't understand. Uh, but, but they've been running for about 20, 25 years now. And it's not just the U.S. The U.K. has some of them. It's like uh, they're now leaving people, you know, not just on an island, but they have all these weird twists and turns now. Like, it's just beyond me. I, I still don't, don't understand. <laughs> Wait till the next time we have this segment, Jazz. I'm going to start pulling on reality shows on you. Well, you should. And, and I look forward to having you on a regular basis uh, because there is so much choice out there with streaming. Do you, by the way, do you watch regular TV anymore? Cable? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Uh, that's your answer. Yeah, I mean, professional wrestling, that's it. Just but, professional But wrestling. I'm strictly on streaming, Jazz. Strictly on streaming. Saves time. Stephen, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Mr. Joe Hall. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was. It's time for The Wrap. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all, thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap. On the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, the topics on the agenda. Tom Brady picks football over his supermodel wife, Giselle Bunchen, and gets intercepted by divorce. And is there a time to better celebrate Halloween? Perhaps the last Saturday of the month. That's what most Canadians are saying. Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels, a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster. Leah and Sarah, welcome. Hello, guys. Hello, Sarah. Hello, my friend. You sound very distant. Was it something we oh, said? I? Oh, my God. Well, it's, it's just, you know, I'm deep in thought. So, <laughs> You're you know. deep in thought. I'm glad because this, uh, this just particular... Just the one thought. Yeah. Just the one thought. Well, deep this, in thought. This, this subject uh, is, uh, you know, is going to re- require all our brain cells. We learned today that Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchen are headed to Splitsville in the most shocking supernova implosion of an A-list union since the demise of Brangelina. How's that for subtlety, by the way? Uh, the former couple who... <laughs> had been married for 13 years and uh, shared two kids filed for divorce today. Um, Leah, let me go to you first and foremost. We know Tom Brady is dedicated to football in his career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, every, people have talked about him uh, retiring. He said he was retiring. He came back literally after <laughs> about five weeks. Is this a guy choosing career over family? You know, yeah, that's that's quite the loaded uh, statement there. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think he is choosing football, but I wouldn't say over his kids, I per se. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously Giselle had, for the last few years has wanted him to quit. She's worried about him getting CTE. She's worried about all of that. And I think that when you're an athlete to that level, it's hard for them to really retire fully. Mm-hmm. Even to commentate, you don't get that excitement, right? They don't get that rush of going out on the field and the excitement of playing. So I think for him, it's going to take a lot to get him to actually retire. And the fact that divorce is not getting him to retire, <laughs> I mean, he's going to play till he's 50, I think. So I think you're going to see him for a 
while, but it's definitely affecting him on the field. I mean, the Bucks are what three and five, so yeah. he's not having a good good go of it right now. I'll tell you that. Yeah, Sarah. You know, I I've found you know as I get older, uh, when my retirement date comes, I am going to be gone. I'm going to be one of those guys. Where'd Jazz go? Oh, he retired. He's gone. <laughs> And then there are those folks who like to linger and stick around. Like a bad smell. Like a bad smell. (laughs) And, you know, there's no judgment here. Some people are just like that. They need to keep keep working, and I respect that. But in situations like this, after you've won all those Super Bowls, you've made enough money. And guess what? There's a broadcast booth waiting for you at Fox Mm -hmm. with, I think, is it $25 million a year they're willing to pay him? And he gave all that up to continue to play for maybe one year, maybe two. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, I mean, I have I have never been a Tom Brady fan. For those who remember the me movie neither. Animal House. For those who remember the movie <laughs> Animal House, he's always reminded me of Niedermeyer. Look it up. He looks exactly like him. I don't know. I mean, why would you want to end your career on a, like, well, as, as, as Leah just pointed out, a three and five season? You know, he was, he retired for all of five weeks. Now he's back. He's, he's sucking. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> he's sucking wind. And this is what people are going to remember. This is a guy that's tried to like have the entire, like, you know, the beautiful landscape of his life and everything's perfect. And now everybody's going to be reading this into every time he like misses a pass, any, any time anything like that happens. You know, there is something to be said that, you know, leaving on a high note and, and yeah. God knows my media career, maybe I should have done that about 17 years ago. <laughs> How did you guys let me in the door? I have no idea. That's another story altogether. But it, um, yeah, leave on a high note. I mean, even though there's those of us in the audience that wish you'd never come around at all, just leave on a high note. No one to yeah. say, no one to fold them, no one to hold them, no one to fold them. Leah, why do you think that is? I mean, <laughs> all of us. I mean, whether you're a professional athlete, uh, you, you've got a you know an average job, whatever it may be. Uh, there's some folks who just hang on for too long. Is, is it just ego that drives us? I'm, I, I don't understand that. You, you think he's accomplished enough. I'm yeah. out of here, you know? I mean, he's won how many, you know, Super Bowls? I I think he just loves the attention, too. I think he loves the attention that he gets, and he likes to be talked about. So if he's commentating, they're really not going to talk about him. He's talking about others, right? Mm-hmm. So I think he likes to be talked about and to be revered and people to be like, wow, he's, what, 45 and he's playing so good? You know, I just think he likes that attention. I think and he may have liked it more than Giselle. So I think, I think and the other the thing is, I was going to say, as far as his commentating future is concerned the guy has always come across as extremely one-dimensional to me i can't see him (laughs) being a very vibrant addition to any commentating uh like i mean like he's not going to be like you know the mad are you saying he's dumb sarah are you saying he's dull as dishwater (laughs) i swear to god he's just he's just like that kind of very bland vanilla you know that guy (laughs) in high school that never actually got beyond the dumb job of 18 yeah it's and it's like you know once that's taken away from him, really, what what can you say about Tom Brady? Well, he married a gorgeous woman, and she, and they had beautiful children. Apart from that, like, can you see him in a commentating career? I mean, no, who cares I mean, what Tom Brady has? Yeah, I, think you, I, I can't think, see him having good color, right? I can't see that. No, uh, I think I think no. Sarah raises a very good point. You actually, once you're in the in the in the commentary booth, you actually have to say negative things about people if they're making yep. mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's the kind of guy to say that person, that quarterback, that he wants to be loved. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to be loved. Well, and they've shown the sidelines where he's been screaming at his, uh, his teammates for you know not performing and doing whatever. I mean, this is a guy that hates to lose. 
And the thing is, I mean, because he's managed to succeed in all things up to this point, marriage, marrying Giselle, you know, football and everything to step into the booth. And if he like, you know, blows, which I think he probably would, because I just don't see him as being a commentator. That's just me. That's that's going to be a real big strike against him. And I don't know if his ego can handle that. <laughs> Why not start like a football, you know, a new league, you know, for minors or something kind of like, um, look what Peyton Manning is now, right? I mean, know? I was, I was going to say Peyton Manning is hilarious. He's done comedy. He's like, he's a great commentator. He's hosting an award show coming up. I mean, Peyton mm-hmm. Manning has got lots of personality. Can you imagine Peyton Manning standing and like, who would you want to hang out with? Peyton Manning or Tom Brady? <laughs> Peyton Manning. I'll take yeah. Peyton Manning all the live long day. All right. We've kicked around, uh, I think Tom Brady enough today. But <laughs> I, 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 he's, I, apparently he's listening and is going to call in during the break. Well, so this is know, going to be how, how do you how do you mess up that marriage? That's just my two cents. I mean, she seems yeah. like a very smart woman, very yes. capable, uh, family oriented, and he throws that away for one more football. Super Bowl. One more, yeah. And I'm a huge football fan, but you've won enough Super Bowls. Move on, buddy. We go to our second rap topic. Uh, recently, Research School, a local polling company, uh, asked Canadians about Halloween. Now, it's one of the most celebrated holidays here in Canada and the United States. And of course, on Monday, Canadian kids will return to their usual routine of knocking on doors of their neighbors to, to seek candy. But Research Co. did a recent poll, and well, 44% of Canadians agree that moving Halloween to the last Saturday of October uh, makes sense. In fact, the United States, they've started a national um, uh, petition to ask the president to do the same thing. Now, you would ask yourself why. Well, there's a lot of reasons. One of them, they say, is that uh, they're, they're, that they obviously families with young children uh, want to take their kids trick-or-treating on a, uh, on a weekend instead of a weeknight because of their bedtime. And, of course, uh, adults also want to be enjoying Halloween as well, and they'd rather do that on a Saturday night rather than a weeknight and have to head to work the next day. Well, let me go to you first, Leah. What are your thoughts on this? Should we move Halloween to the last Saturday of October. I mean, who wants a Halloween on a Monday, right? Like Monday. (laughs) I do. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised, Sarah. I'm not surprised. I'm kind of torn by this because, I mean, it's good. Yes, like you said, Jazz, if you move it to a Saturday, then kids don't have to worry about school the next day. They don't have to worry about school that day, right, and rushing home to get changed. And then adults can party. You don't have to worry about fireworks keeping you up. But, I mean, I I think it's all good. But then also, I mean, Halloween is the 31st. It's a creepy day, right? So if you're moving it to, you know, October 20th, it doesn't sound as good, you know, or October 25th. I don't know. To me, I just think keeping it at the 31st is is what it should be because it's the creepy day, you know? It has a history, right? It's the day. So I don't know. Sarah, how about you? Well, I mean, first of all, I I work like this is in in all seriousness, as much as it sounds like a great idea and the parents are at home and all that kind of stuff, I do worry about on on a Saturday night, you know, kids running around and especially the older kids that are able to go out without their parents, right? Like the yes. 10 to 12 year olds mm-hmm. and they're running around on the street and there's also people that are driving to parties and not, and, you know, unfortunately people still do drive having imbibed or having, you know, used other substances. I worry about that. Like, so for kids safety on the roads, I also, even though I don't have kids myself, I mean, like, you know, if I did want to go out, then I'd be feeling guilty. I wouldn't want to leave the house until like 839 because I want to make sure I get all the little trick-or-treaters. I mean, not that I'm leaving the house at 830 or 9, but I mean, but also on top of which, 
that just to me is that that is Saturday and Sunday. It's fire and Friday night too. Yes. Firecrackers, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. I've got two dogs and I know people are like, get over it. But you know, people with pets, people with small children, I mean, I, I, I get that people really like fireworks and if we could somehow all agree to have very specific areas where families could gather and enjoy a fireworks display as opposed to like yeah. little monsters running around and shooting off yeah. Roman candles at people. I'd be all for <laughs> it. But the thing is, I, I do actually worry about the safety of kids on a Saturday night when everybody is going out at the same time because they don't have to work the next day. There's a lot of implications that go on with that. Those are very yeah, responsible answers. I was speaking yeah, to John. Yeah, I from me, I know it's shocking. It's like I've been taken <laughs> I over know. by another person. I was speaking to John McCobe, who was here yesterday, and he told me about uh, our former colleague, Philip Till, talk show host here for a very, very long time and a very respected journalist. He had no time for Halloween. Didn't matter if it was weekend or weekday. <laughs> when Halloween would come, all the lights in the house were off, doors were locked, The house was not remotely inviting. He just had no interest in participating. Nothing. And I, funnily enough, I really I love especially the little ones. I mean, the older kids. I and the and because it depends on which area I've been living in. When I lived in Toronto, I lived in an area called Leaside, and there was hundreds of kids. Yeah. And I mean, you just went through bags and bags of food. Where I live right now. Not as many, but there's also the little ones that come in the neighborhood because the houses are closer together. Yes. And I always yeah. give them a giant handful of candy and the parents are always, you know, that's too much. I said, really, how many houses do you really want to go to until that little pumpkin barrel is filled <laughs> up? I'm like, I'm literally helping you people out and I don't want left. <laughs> but so, that's, that's a very good point because there's so many um, uh, single family neighborhoods now with empty nesters yeah. and people aren't yep. buying those homes that, you know, I remember when we first moved into our neighborhood. There weren't a lot of kids. Now we're, there's a lot more, and it's just a, a change in the neighborhood, which is a good thing, very positive. But initially, we didn't read really trick or treat in our neighborhood. There wasn't a lot of kids there. We had to go to other neighborhorhoods. It was quite interesting, and I think that's part of there living go. in Vancouver. Yeah, some neighborhoods down here in South Surrey where I live are, you know, nothing will happen. And that's because the houses are on half acre gross density, these big lots, right? Yeah, it's it's too, a long way for these little ones. Yeah. So they'll go down to some of the more densely populated new suburbs. Yeah. And those people are like bankrupt at the end of it because they have like literally spent hundreds of Well, that's of like my mom's. I usually, I usually go to my mom's place and decorate her place because she gets like 200 kids. So it's always like such a big that festival that, of that's children. What it should, so. To me, it's it's all really about the little ones. Yeah. And yeah. the little ones are the ones that are trick-or-treating between like sort of 5.30 and 7.30. It's, yeah. it's supposed to be for the little ones. So like it doesn't really matter. If I it's dress up. Yeah, I think that like, I'm dressed up. Like, like all of us old idiots that like want to dress up as sexy kitten, get over it. You know, can can manage to <laughs> well, do it on me, the Saturday but... before or after. You know? oh, there I mean, you go, ladies. We've run out of time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful if I see weekend. One more sexy kitten costume. I'm telling you. <laughs> so I won't send you my Instagram. All right. All right. Oh my God, Leah! No. <laughs> Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.